First uh, John, we'll be doing Second John and Third John here in the next couple of weeks, and then we'll be moving on to our summer series, Ecclesiastes, and talking about the um, meaning of life. So, pretty shallow subject we'll jump into uh, over the summer. But tonight, John is wrapping up his message. This has been intense uh, for those in uh, uh, Ephesus who heard him. 2,000 years ago as he wrote this letter to them, uh, they hear these final thoughts, and, and this is his goodbyes. He, he's summing everything up, and we see uh, the Father's heart in this tonight. Goodbyes are hard. I don't know about you, but I, I don't like goodbyes. Um, sometimes you've got to say goodbye, and, and it's difficult. Uh, I remember just a few weeks ago, going back for the first time in three years to our church plant in Utah and seeing all the growth and the excitement and everything that was happening. Um, it was powerful, and I was excited to be there, but it was really, really hard to know what to preach. Like I could have preached about anything, and it's been three years. I've come up with a few sermons since the last time I saw them, but knowing, like, I might not see you guys again. Like, that's hard. And for me, I felt like a spiritual father for a lot of those folks. Even though most of them were uh, older than me, I played that role for them. And, and I know that um, it was probably as difficult uh, for John, if not much more, to say goodbye to these folks. We have second and third John, but maybe he didn't know he was going to write them. And so this is, uh, this is going to show us tonight uh, a father's heart. That's what First John has been about. This is, this is getting back to the basics of what it means to really follow Jesus. And so tonight, as we walk through this, uh, we're going to see the father heart of God. He's a father, and you are his children. If your faith is in Jesus, you are his child. And so tonight, it's going to be a lot. Uh, it's going to be action-packed, but it's going to be good. And this is um, going to add some new stuff that we haven't talked about in this series, but it's also going to sum everything up. So here are five things um, in John chapter, First uh, John chapter 5, verses 13 through 21, five things that we know God wants for you. This is what he wants. First one, verse 13, he says, Now I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. So John's saying this is for Christians, and this is my purpose. I'm writing this for a very specific purpose that you may know that you have eternal life. First thing that God wants is he wants to be with you forever. God wants to be with you forever. He says that you may know. The whole purpose of this is assurance. He wants Christians to know. There have been false teachers. They've been coming in talking about uh, a Jesus that, that isn't the Jesus of the Bible. There's lots of Jesuses out there. There's false Jesuses. There's only one true Jesus. And John's saying, I want you to know. That's what, uh, that's what good daddies do, is they give their kids assurance. They give them assurance. Um, and they speak of things eternal. And when we put Silas to sleep at night, and I lay him in his bed and his little uh, three-year-old body is moving all around, trying not to go to sleep, and, and I'm trying to calm him down. And I ask him, say, buddy, tell me about your day. What did you like to do? And he'll normally tell me about simple things, right? Like who he played with, or, um, or he'll just have like an off-the-wall comment about something completely random that I didn't ask him about, but he just is three, and that's what comes out of his mouth. And, and I will eventually, after he speaks, I'll tell him of things eternal. I'll, I'll speak um, things that, that really matter over him. I'll say, Silas, you know daddy loves you, right? And he'll say, yeah. I'll say, you know the strongest kind of love is a father's love, right? And he'll say, why? And I'll say, because that's how God feels about us. And it's never going to change. And I speak that over him. That's what daddies do. They, they assure their children in a world that is all over the place with philosophy and even theology and, and all kinds of things. God wants you to know. If you call Jesus Lord, you're my child and I love you. And through the ups and the downs, you need to know that will never, ever, ever change. He says, I want you to know that you have eternal life at the end of verse 13, eternal life. Now, we talked about this last week, that eternal life doesn't start at death, but it starts at salvation because eternal life is what? It's not just a place, it's a person, it's Jesus. 
So for many of us, we grew up thinking that we will have eternal life as Christians. When we die, then we go to heaven, which is true. But eternal life doesn't start at death. It starts when you meet Jesus. And if you have placed your faith in him, then that starts at salvation. That starts at salvation. So it's not just a matter of you going to heaven, but when you place your faith in Jesus, heaven comes to you as the Holy Spirit resides in you. That's a beautiful thing. That must mean that that eternal life isn't just then a duration of time, meaning heaven and forever, but it's a quality of time. That if eternal life really starts on earth, then the second you place your faith in Jesus until the second you die physically, you're going to have a quality of life. Not meaning that you're going to get cars and mansions and God's going to bless you in material ways. Not, not talking about that. But if you have a relationship with Jesus, you've got something the world doesn't have. You have a quality of life that is out of this world. And, and so, let me ask you, are you enjoying eternal life? And that's odd. But are you enjoying eternal life? Knowing it doesn't just start when you get to heaven, it starts now with a relationship with Jesus. Let me ask you a weird question. Theologically, this is not correct, so please don't take this home with you and say, hey, let me, let me scribble this in my notes and come back to it. But I'm just, just for the sake of this, this, this discussion here, I want to ask you a question. If heaven didn't exist, would you still follow Jesus? Meaning, whether you follow him or not, there's a hell, we're going to hell, don't matter what you do on earth, like live it up. Hell's hell, but heaven doesn't exist. If that somehow was possible, it's not possible, please understand me. But if that was possible, would you still follow Jesus? That's a good heart question. Meaning, is your experience with him, has he changed you so much? Have you experienced the power of God's love in such a way that you know, man, even if there wasn't a heaven after I die, I'm experiencing heaven on earth. I have ups, I have downs, there's good days, there's bad days, there's all kinds of circumstances I walk through, but I wouldn't trade a relationship with Jesus for anything. Is that you? Is that you? Um, I'm happy to be married. Are you happy, Tara? Um, before I got married, though, I thought about what it would be like to be married. You ever done that as a single person? All the time, right? It comes up probably way too often, doesn't it? You think about what it would actually be like to be in a long-term, lifelong, committed relationship. And although you, you, you think, man, that would be good, hopefully you think that would be good, depending on who you're in a relationship with, it, it might not be good. But you think about that, that lifelong commitment, and, and you think, man, but I'm not there now. And you just look forward to that time. But I remember, even when I met Tara, when I first met her, and I didn't have a clue that we were going to get married, but I thought, man, I would like to be, <laughs> like she's the kind of gal I could picture myself being married to. One of my friends asked me, um, this is one of those creepy behind-the-scenes conversations that you don't ever tell anyone about until you're preaching one day, and, and not many people show up on a Wednesday night, and you feel like you could tell them. And, and he, said, he said, out of all the girls you know, like, would you marry any of them? Would you marry any of them? And I said, the only person, the only girl that I know that I would marry is Tara. And we were just friends. But I remember even before we were in that lifelong committed relationship of marriage, before we were even dating, I knew, man, I went to the gym all the time. And if I saw her go to the gym, I would wait. I would wait. I would wait until she came out of her gym class or whatever she was doing. And I would be there like, oh, yeah, like, hey, how's it going? And like we would just happen to, to see each other. Or if she was going to be serving in the church on a Sunday night, like I wanted to make sure I was there because I wanted to see her. You see, sometimes the person you're with is worth more than the place you are. Sometimes the person that you're with is worth more than than the place that you are. So what I'm saying is, when it comes to eternal life, heaven with Jesus is going to be awesome. But being on earth with Jesus isn't that bad either. (laughs) Are you enjoying it? Because that's why John's writing this. That you would know you have eternal life. That eternal life starts now. 
Verse 14 and 15. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, and whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. Seems a little bit repetitive, but let's find out what it means. Second thing we see, God wants you to know he wants to live with you forever. And second, he wants to hear from you. That's the, that's the Father's heart. This is what God wants. He wants to hear from you. You ever had a hard time getting a hold of someone really important? <laughs> they just won't pick up their phone. They won't answer a text. Email. It gets frustrating, doesn't it? You kind of feel insecure, like, who do you think you are? You won't call me. Like right now, the church, we've been trying to upgrade our internet service because we have a bunch of Apple TVs going on Sunday mornings, and sometimes it gets bogged down, and we're like, man, we need something more than 10 and 2. We need like a 25 and 5. So for a month, we've had three different people on like three or four different, different times call the cable company and tell them, essentially, we want to give you more money. Will you take our money so that we can have faster internet? And, and, and then it doesn't happen. And, and then someone calls back a week later and says, hey, so-and-so called. Do you have a record of that? And they've said, no, we didn't. And, and then do you have a record of this other person calling? No, we don't. And then we'll say, okay, but can you now, let's just forget the past. Can you update and upgrade us now? We would like faster internet. We would like to give you money out of our pockets. The real thing, not the monopoly kind, the real kind. We would love to do that for you. We still, after like five phone calls in the last month, do not have updated internet. That could be frustrating, right? Even as, um, as a pastor, I know I get phone calls, and sometimes I don't always take them. I'll get back to them later. But you know what? When my son comes up to me and wants to talk, I don't blow him off. And God wants you to know, I want to hear from you. And although I'm the most important person in the world, I got time for you. Although people all over the world, in every nation, every ethnicity, every religion, are trying to call out to me, you need to know those who have placed their faith in Jesus are the ones that I'm listening to. And you got my ear morning, day, night. You got my ear. John he explains prayer here in, in three different parts. The, the confidence, the conversation, and the trust. Now, the confidence is that we can be confident toward God that he wants to hear us. That's good news. Some of us didn't grow up with daddies who wanted to talk to us. That's sad. It happens all the time. We just did a whole rites of passage, Father's blessing thing on Sunday night because we live in a culture where daddies aren't in the home. But we have confidence that God wants to talk to us, that he's available through Jesus Christ to talk to us. You ever seen uh, moms and kids at a play date? And the kids are running around and the moms are all chatting. And you can always tell when one of the little kids is talking to a mom that's not their own mom. Because what do they do? If the mom's standing over there, the kid who, who is called out by the mom will stand like five feet off and just kind of look up at him and not have any expression and just kind of talk like this, because they don't know what to do. They have a hard time being confident, don't they? Because that's not my mama. But then what happens to the kid who goes up to his mama at those play dates? You know who they are, because the mama's having a conversation like, yeah, so we did this, and I checked Pinterest, but I didn't really like that, so I did this other thing, and then this one thing, and then, what? Do you, what? And then, well, here's the thing. I was going to try the one recipe, but I didn't find it. I, I thought I saved it. Please, what do you want? And, and what happens is you find that kid who knows who their parent is, they come up with what? Confidence. They say, I, don't, I know you're having a conversation, but I don't care. You're available to me all the time, aren't you? That's, that's what happens when you got confidence with your mom and with your dad. And God's saying you can have that kind of confidence to come up any time. I'm never too busy for you. But then we have more than confidence in prayer. We have conversation. Now, let me, let me spend a little bit of time on this one, right? Because this is, this is important. We have conversation. If you struggle with prayer, and some of us do, Make sure that you don't look at it from a religious standpoint, but a, a, a relational standpoint. Like a child talking to their parent, right? Like even, even last night, 
Again, Silas, I was putting him to sleep. And I was praying over him. I was praying for him. We're in the dark, and he's laying in his bed. And I'm praying this prayer, this big prayer to God for Silas. And Silas stops me. A minute earlier, he told me his stomach didn't feel very good. But really, he just wanted out of bed because he didn't want to go to sleep. He wanted to run upstairs and do something. And as I'm praying, he stops me and says, Daddy, I'm going to pray now. He said, God, please heal my stomach. It doesn't feel very good. Amen. Like, he just interrupted my prayer, just stopped. It, like, I was praying out. Like, it wasn't like I was like, oh, well, I'm kind of tailing off. I'm falling asleep a little bit. Like, no, he, he heard me praying loudly, and he just interrupted. At first, even as a pastor, I was like, who do you think you are? But then I was like, no, this is good. Because he's talking to God like he talks to me. That's not always good. <laughs> In the sense that sometimes it might be a little disrespectful. But in general... He felt so comfortable with his father in heaven that he was talking to him like his father on earth. That's how God wants you to be. He wants you to feel like you can talk to him like that. And of course, it says that we have confidence because if we ask anything, he hears us. Now, God always hears you in Christ Jesus. It might not seem like he hears you. But he's always going to respond with one of three answers. He's either going to say yes, or he's going to say no, or he's going to say later. Sometimes you can pray the right prayer, but it just isn't the right timing. And, and you might ask for something, and he says, okay, I hear you, I love you, and my answer is actually yes. But it just ain't happening right now. It ain't happening right now. Silas asks me all the time. He'll say, again, when, he, when he's trying to prolong going to sleep at night, he'll ask me, Hey, can I have water, Dad? I want water. I want water. And I'll say, yeah, you can have water, but not right now. Get in bed. I love you. Quit messing around. Go to bed. You'll have water in the morning. And sometimes that's what it's like with God. It's not just a yes or a no, but it's a later. Now, the question is, and I know most of us think this somewhere deep inside, how can I get God to say yes more? Like, how, how can I get him to say yes on some things? Well, biblically, the way that you get God to say yes is when you start praying his will. You see, we don't pray to God to change his will. We pray to discover his will. Does that make sense? We don't, we don't come to the Father to get him to change his ways or his mind or his will. We come to him because we know he wants to change our ways and our will to align with his. And so you pray what you know God wants you to pray. And as your heart, as you're transformed by Jesus, as his spirit works in you, you're going to find your desires to see your will and God's will align. They're going to increase. So I think some of us, we get used to saying, I don't hear from God. And knowing that he's going to respond with a yes or a no or a later I think what happens a lot of times is it's not that God doesn't hear us and then has a communication back to us. Like he doesn't have a communication problem, right? He doesn't cut out. Like he knows who you are. He knows how to get a hold of you. I think, I think what happens to most of us is he says no, and we just don't like hearing that. He says no, and we just don't like hearing it. If you're tired of him saying no, then you've got to align your prayers with his will. If you take verses like this out of context and you just apply it to anything, well, I ask God, God, make this relationship work. Bring her back. Bring him back. God, I, I want to go to school. I want to do this. I want, I want this. God's saying, I'll answer prayer all the time with a yes when it's in my will. Of course, the book of James, all throughout Scripture, we see that affirmed. We see that affirmed. So, you ask yourself this, how in the world do I know that I'm praying God's will. Because I'm not. Maybe you're there thinking, I want to pray God's will. I just don't know if I am. Well, I think we have a wrong view of God's will in a lot of ways. I think a lot of us view it as a tightrope when I think it's probably more of a highway. When you view God's will for your life as a tightrope, you're tense and you think there's absolutely no room for error and it's kind of a miserable existence. 
because you think, man, if I just hear one thing wrong from God and I go this way, like, man, I'm out of his will and it's just completely messed up and I don't know how to get it back on track. And I think God has made it clear. He's told us so many things about his will in Scripture that, that it's like a highway. He gives us he gives us ditches to avoid and says, here, this is my will. And you know in here that there, there's a little bit, for lack of better terms, wiggle room, that you can breathe easy, that you can trust, that, that you can be walking down this narrow highway without feeling like you're falling off of a tightrope. But there's several more things that we can do to know. When we're praying God's will. Here's three right here. The first one is to test it against his word. So you ask yourself, okay, God, can I date or marry this guy or this gal? They're not necessarily a believer, but sometimes it's hard to tell. What does God's word say? Don't be unequally yoked. Don't marry that unbeliever. Here's your answer. Don't date him. Definitely don't marry him, because if you date him, you're going to be more inclined to marry him. That's clear. You just know. That's God's will. I ain't even got to guess. Or, or, or you say, God, um, man, I, I, God, I want to walk in your will. And, and so, um, Lord, I, I'm praying that you would make me a better spouse, that I could treat my spouse better. Boom. You know. Based on his word, that's God's will. That's God's will. And so you can function within that. Like, I don't struggle when when I'm praying about us as a church or me as a man or us as a family, talking about making disciples, talking about loving our neighbors, talking about all the issues that surround these things, because I know this is God's will. And I don't have to fall off this tightrope that, hey, I'm walking in it, and I realize his word tells me what his will is. Number two, you can ask wise counsel. You see, even as a pastor, I know I need wise counsel around me because the word of God tells us over and over and over and over again, get wise counsel. Now, what's wise counsel? Is it just someone older than you, more mature than you? Not necessarily. It's someone who loves the Lord, who knows the word, and who can guide you in God's will. Some people, God says, have a gift of wisdom. So there's wisdom that God gives people, but then there's others. He gives like just a... a, a, unordered amount to of wisdom it's good to be around those people and they can speak into your life but even even in my life i recognize number one i'm not flawless in understanding even god's word i am a human being so i might be struggling with god's word in that like i think it could go here i think it could go here i just don't know and to be around wise counsel you can recognize and understand god's word and his will better You also recognize I need wise counsel because I can't always interpretate myself very well. Sometimes it's hard to see your blind spots. That's why they call them blind spots. It's hard. We all want to be self-aware. I mean, maturity, a big part of it is being self-aware and knowing your flaws in life. And so that you can be sanctified and walk forward in power and move through those flaws. But sometimes it's hard to know. where my blind spots are. And wise counsel will help you. The third one, of course, is the Holy Spirit. Sometimes you will start in a decision in life and you'll know, okay, I'm conversating with God and I'm talking to him about his will and I want to know what his will is. And and immediately, before you even necessarily know what his word says about it or you've had wise counsel, you know in your gut whether it's right or wrong. You know. You know in your gut. And so then you work and you see these things, his word and wise counsel, confirm or affirm that other times you will start off and you'll say i really ain't getting any sense the holy spirit didn't tell me one way or another which way to go but then when you get into his word and we get around wise counsel you'll start to have a much clearer understanding the spirit will well up in within you and say here's here's where i'm leading here's here's the truth but either way The Holy Spirit discerns and lets you know. You ever have that gut feeling where you just know one way or another? When it's Holy Spirit-led, it can be trusted. Of course, the last part of prayer that John explains here is that we know that we have the request that we have asked for. See, it's kind of repetitive in verse 15. 
But he says, because we know him, we trust him, he said he hears us, we don't have to guess, we don't have to be insecure, we don't have to wonder, is it because I made a mistake or I haven't been living for you perfectly lately? No, the blood of Jesus covers us. We're trusting in him, we have faith in him, we have access now to God, and he hears us, and we have presented our request to him. So, we trust. If his answer is yes, if his answer is no, if his answer is later, we trust in his sovereignty. That God knows what's best for me in my life. And I'm just going to trust him. That's part of prayer. Is that you trust the result. That you don't walk away saying, "Ah, I'm not sure. If he heard me, I'm not sure. He heard you. Have confidence. Conversate with him. God's not just, he's not just transactional. When you've got a message for God, it's the difference between some of us, we treat God like a mailbox, and he's saying, it's more like the post office. When you just go to the mailbox, you take your message, and you drop it off, and you leave. And when you go to the post office, you go in, and they tell you what's going on. They say, how much does it weigh, and where's it going, and we're going to do some things with dimensions, and you have a conversation that leads to understanding. So it's not just a matter of you presenting your request to God, trusting that he hears, but it's engaging with God in conversation, and he gives you understanding. He wants to hear from you. Verse 16. And if anyone sees, this is, this is not an easy verse, a couple verses here. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that does not lead to death. So this is confusing. This is confusing. But what we see is that God wants to be with you forever. God wants to hear from you. But God also wants you to pray for people. God wants you to pray for people. How many of you know someone right now that they are struggling? They are struggling. It, it could be addiction. It could be uh, just brokenness in relationship. It could be that they're struggling and they don't even realize they're struggling, but you can see they're struggling. It could be crisis or tragedy. We all have people in our lives that we know are struggling. And when God sees us, he doesn't want us just to talk to him about ourselves. He cares about those that we care about. And he wants us to go on their behalf and talk to him in their place. Even when they don't want to talk to God, he wants us to talk for him. He says, if anyone sees his brother, so here's the thing, sees his brother, so not rumor, not perception, this isn't suspecting or perceiving that someone's in sin. This is, this is a little more concrete. This is affirmation. This is confirmation. That you know, man, they are struggling right now with sin. Then he shall ask. So here's where the prayer comes in. This is intercession prayer. This is when you stand in the gap and you pray for someone else. God, we know, has sent Jesus not only to die and be raised again, but right now he's where? At the right hand of the Father, interceding for us. So when you pray, this is why the Bible says we pray in Jesus' name, because Jesus is there saying, God, they're with me. They wouldn't have access to you because they're broken and they're sinful and you're holy. If it wasn't for me and my blood on the cross, that's why you sent me. So they got messages, I'm giving them to you, Father. They got messages, I'm giving them to you. That's why we pray in the name of Jesus. But you get to reflect that. We're not, in the sense, we're not like Catholic priests. But First Peter says that we are a nation of priests. And that we, through Jesus, get to pray for each other could have access to God because of him. And then it says, the sin that does not lead to death. So there's sins that lead to death and sins that don't lead to death. Now this is confusing because the Bible makes it very clear that all sin separates us from God. That all sin, one sin in your life, means you deserve death because God is holy and we're broken. So this is, this is confusing this is, this is like having a knot in your shoelace and you're just, you're kind of messing with it. And you're like, I don't know what to do. This is, this is hard. 
It's easy to stumble over. Now, first, before we jump into the views here, I'm, I'm going to give you a whole bunch of different views on what this means. But it's important for us to, to understand what sin is. We haven't talked about specifically sin in, in, in quite a while. You've got to understand that you and I are sinners in, in two ways. We are sinners by condition and by action. Condition, meaning the Bible makes it clear we were born from Adam and Eve. They are, technic, they are, they are even though not our literal mother and father, but they are spiritually. We, are, we come from their brokenness passed down. And so we have a sin nature that is uh, has a predisposition towards sin and turning from God, rejecting God. So that's just built into humanity. But then we also choose it. Every single one of us has chosen to turn from God, to choose our own way, our own path, our own will. So we are sinners because of condition and action, but we're also understand um we we sin in a couple different ways by commission and omission and this is important because the church has a lot of these different kinds of sins but some people don't realize uh, that they even exist commission is when you do something that is blatantly wrong or in rejecting god omission is when you don't do something that is good in the sense that um if i came home if I was at home and Tara coming in, she thought I was going to be doing the dishes and she sees that I took all of her um, awesome Tupperware or something that's not supposed to be put in the dishwasher and I put it in the dishwasher, she's going to say that that was wrong. That was a sin of commission. It was something I wasn't supposed to do, but I did it anyway. Or if she walked in and she thought I was going to do the dishes, but they're all piled up and I didn't even touch them, that would be a sin of omission, meaning you were supposed to do something good, but you didn't. And oftentimes, People come into the church, and it's obvious those who have sins of commission, meaning they got addiction issues. They're living blatantly against God's will. Um, you see all kinds of, uh, of struggles in their life, and people are like, oh, look, they're obviously struggling with sin. But there's a whole other group of people. And oftentimes, they're the ones who have been in the evangelical culture for a long time, and so they've known how to kind of clean their life up, and they don't have a bunch of adultery or a bunch of the the major big stuff going on in their life, but they sit quietly in the pews, and they hear sermon after sermon after sermon, but they don't ever change. They don't really care about loving their neighbor. They don't really care about making disciples, and they have just as many sins of omission, because it's not just about what you're, what you're doing that's blatantly wrong. It's about what you're not doing that God wants you to do. And sins come from our thoughts. Sin comes from our mouth. Sin comes from our heart, from our deeds, from all of these places. That's sin. That's sin. Now, here's a bunch of views. Eight of them. I hope you like lists. We got a bunch of lists. So here, here's where people go when they wonder, what does it mean to have sins that lead to death and sins that don't lead to death? What is John talking about? The first one is the big versus little sin. This is the, the Catholic view. This is the, the, the mortal sin versus uh, the penial sin. This is that there's some sins that are, that are really big and, and, and then some sins that, that aren't. Mortal versus venial. Venial. And so the Catholics w- would take this position or stance, that somehow some sins are big, some are little. So they would say the sins that lead to death are, are the big sins, and the sins that don't lead to death are the little sins. There's all kinds of issues with that view. The second one is the intentional versus unintentional sin. So the sins that lead to death would be the ones that like you blatantly do. In the Old Testament, you see the sacrificial system. That was for sins done blatantly. But people still sinned in ignorance all the time. They didn't even know they were making mistakes. That was a whole different ballgame. So they're saying, well, the ones that you don't even know you're making, those mistakes, those would be the ones that don't lead to death, but the ones that you intentionally do are the ones that lead to death. There's issues with that. Apostasy. For those who know Jesus but then turn their back on Jesus. They walk away from him. They say, that's the sin that leads to death, is the one where you turn and walk away from him. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Jesus talked about that. This is when he was performing miracles, when he he was doing holy, powerful acts of God. And who? The religious leaders, those around him, said, you're doing this by the power of what? The devil. They contributed the acts of God for his glory to be acts of the devil. That's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Some would say, a fifth view, 
that it's an unbeliever's ongoing rejection of Jesus. The problem with that, and several of these, is if you go back to the verse, it says, if you see a brother, meaning Christian. So it's probably not referring to an unbeliever. But of course, the sin that leads to death, if someone doesn't ever place their faith in Jesus, then yeah, all their sins lead to death and hell. Or the physical versus spiritual death. So this is an interesting view. You've got, um, uh, remember Ananias and Sapphira in Acts? They commit a sin. They got greediness, and they didn't want to give up their money to God. And it says that, boom, they just died on the spot. Or you got things like in First Corinthians, talking to the believers about the Lord's Supper. And Paul's saying, that's why some of you have fallen asleep. Like they, they weren't doing it right. They, they, they were sinning in this process, and God just let them die physically, immediately. You read that stuff in Scripture, you're like, huh? That's crazy. Whereas other people in Scripture sin, but they don't die immediately. So maybe he's referring to that. Or seven, contextual, meaning there's maybe an issue that you and I don't have a clue was going on that John saw. There was some kind of cult leading them astray, that there was something 2,000 years ago in that culture that we don't know of. Maybe they, they had some sin that they knew that led to death and some that didn't. And then the last one, Christian versus a non-Christian's sins. And what this view would say would be Christians, even though we're called not to sin, we still make mistakes. But we know if we're found in Christ Jesus, we're not going to hell, even when we mess up. And, and yet an unbeliever, even on their good days, are still going to hell. If their faith isn't in Christ Jesus. And so their sins would lead to death, our sins would not. Again, there's issues with that because it says brother. So it's obviously referring to Christian. So that's a lot of views. What's the right answer? I don't know. I don't know. I know that some of these can probably be dismissed because, again, he refers to brother, meaning this is if you see other Christians sinning. So a few of these can get nixed right off the bat. The seventh one, a contextual thing, something that was going on in their culture that we do not know about. Maybe a pretty good chance. But we know all sin is serious. The idea that some lead to death and some don't, it don't really change anything for us. Like we're we're going to repent of sin and we're going to strive for holiness in Jesus. So let's focus on something that we have a little more clarity on. Remember last week I told you, the Bible is all equally true, but not all equally clear. Sometimes it's just hard to tell. And so uh, this is a hill that I'm not going to fight on because I don't know the answer. I really don't know the answer. But what's the instruction? He says, for you and I, if you see someone in sin, you're to ask. You're, you're to pray. You're to intercede for them. This is powerful. You see, there's probably some of you in this room that are overly responsible. And you got people in your life who might be irresponsible. You ever felt like you were holding someone up? That they just didn't care about their own life as much as you cared about their life? And although that can border to some degree, um, in, in some ways, you got to be careful that you don't become self-righteous. We recognize some people are overly responsible and some people are irresponsible. And this person is always burdened for this person. And this person never realizes exactly how frustrating they are to this person. But when you see someone who's broken, someone in sin, he says, you should pray for them. Now, right off the bat, you know there's lots of good things about prayer. The power of God. Like there, there's nothing that you can do more important than be praying for someone. That, that's the work itself. But I want to give you a list of some things that will help you to understand even more so. If you find yourself frustrated with people who are, who are in sin right now, that are, that are going to help you to understand why intercession is so powerful. Number one, it unburdens you. God doesn't just give you burdens for people so that you can be frustrated and say, ah, what do I do? He gives you burdens emotionally for people who are struggling so that you go to the only place that you know you can take that burden off. That's prayer. That's him. So being burdened for someone is a good thing. And it's meant to drive you to the cross. Number two. It serves as a lightning rod. How many times have you been ticked off at somebody? You get incredibly frustrated. And instead of loading, unloading on them, you find 
praying, you can unload on God. Some of us, we get so frustrated, we know in this moment, if I talk to you, I'm going to blow up on you. Intercessory prayer says, you know what? God is the ground for the lightning coming out of your mouth. And he's a lightning rod. He's a lightning rod. Third, is it keeps you active. Sometimes when you're burdened for someone, praying for them is a way for you to make sure you're not slowing down because you say, I want to help them. I want to do something for them. But every attempt that I have to bless them and to help them out of the situation just makes me more and more frustrated and I'm not seeing change in their life. And so I guess I'll just sit here and do nothing. And God says, you got to understand, again, the work is the prayer. The work is the prayer. So it keeps you helping them in the most important way. Number four, it helps you to verbally process. How many of y'all are verbal processors? Sometimes, especially the first two, three years that I would preach, I would write my sermon, I would uh, go over and review my sermon, but then without anyone in the room, I would rehearse and preach my sermon. It would have been awkward if anyone would have walked in. They'd be like, what are you doing? I'd go home and and Tara say, how did it go? Preaching to the masses. And I'd say, they all got saved. They all got saved. And, and, And it helped me to verbally, I had things written on paper, but when I, when I verbalized it, I saw things that I didn't see on paper. I thought, well, that sounds kind of crazy coming out of my mouth. It looked good on paper. Sounds a little crazy coming out of my mouth. Some of you, when, when you pray for other people, you have thoughts about their situation. You have frustrations with them as a person. But when you talk to God about it and it comes out of your mouth, you find clarity and wisdom. And the spirit that God has given you says, hey, you didn't think you, you didn't, you didn't realize you sounded so crazy. Maybe the problem isn't them. Maybe, maybe you got some issues yourself. And even moments of clarity in the midst of prayer happen when you verbally process. Number five, it keeps you from gossip. It keeps you from gossip. You see, the origin of gossip for most of us comes from one of two places, either evil intentions or misplaced good intentions. Evil intentions, meaning, you know what? You ticked me off. I'm frustrated with you. And, and so I'm going to gossip because I want to slander you. I, I, want, I, want, I want to talk about you. I'm frustrated with you. That would be the evil intention. But misplaced good intentions often lead to gossip as well. When, when we've got it overflowing in us that we need to, talk, we need to get this off of our chest. I, I see you broken. I see you hurting. I, I want to help you. And so by getting that off, releasing that to God, we realize they keep us from a lot of gossip. How many times have you found yourself not wanting to gossip, but then your coworker walks in the room and they start talking and they kind of draw it out of you. And you're like, oh, I didn't want to say that about them. I didn't want to engage in that. And you realize if you would have been praying and talking to God about it, you wouldn't have felt the need to get it off your chest to someone else because you got it off your chest to the one who can do something about it. God. Any of this hitting home for anybody? Good, good. Number six, it reduces conflict. Here's the thing. We all got frustrating people in our lives. We are frustrating people to the other people in our lives. If you go to them with every frustration that you ever have, you're going to have conflict. Sometimes you need a sounding board. Someone who can say, that's not worth even talking about. It's not worth it. And, and when you pray for someone, God can let you know, okay, I'll take care of it. Drop it. That little issue there needs to be dropped. That's why intercessory can be so powerful. It'll reduce conflict. And last but not least, it invites the Holy Spirit to do what only he can do. Obviously, this is the most powerful, but it's you saying, God, we need you to get in the middle of this situation. Change them. Change me but you're the only one who can change someone. God is the only one who can change someone. I know there's only a few of you, but you could say amen to that one. God is the only one. We all want to change people, but God is the only one that can change them. I'll say this before we move on. And we got a lot to cover in just a few minutes. Our nation, our culture, our city, our relationships are filled with pain. But if we were honest, they also lack a lot of prayer, don't they? And there is nothing that you can do in any of those situations more important than be praying. Because God is the only one who can really change anyone. Verse 18. 
And we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who has been born of God protects him. And the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil, (coughs) excuse me, the evil one. Fourth thing we see is that God wants to help you change. God wants you to change and he's the only one that can change. Let me ask you this, college age, young professionals, are you any different now than you were when you were in high school? couple of you yeah you hope so right or, or maybe uh, for those of you who are older uh empty nesters do you um do you think that you're any different now than when you first had kids 20 30 years ago hopefully hopefully right you see if time and, and relationships and just natural maturity would change someone that much how much more is a relationship with god with the father in heaven going to change you that's going to really change you. So, John gives us guardrails. If you go back to 1 John chapter 1, what does he say about sin in the life of a believer? And this is one of the guardrails. He says that if any of you claim to be without sin, you're a liar, the truth is not in you. And he's talking to Christians. So if you're a Christian and you say, I don't sin anymore, he's saying, eh, wrong answer. <laughs> you make mistakes. We all make mistakes. So he's saying that. But then now over here on this guardrail, he's saying, but if you're really a Christian, you're not going to go on intentionally sinning. So what he's saying is, you're a sinner, but God is changing you. You're not perfect, but Jesus is perfect and you're becoming more like Jesus. That's what happens in the life of someone who truly follows Jesus. That they experience change. The Holy Spirit in you is going to change you. He doesn't change, but we're always going to change. You see, there's two different kinds uh, of um, Christians when it comes to viewing the change in our lives. Some of us get overwhelmed by it. And I want to encourage you, you can be a rear view mirror Christian or you can be a windshield Christian. The rear view mirror Christian is the one who looks in their past and sees all of the things that they came from and recognizes, man, I came from some junk. And although it doesn't always feel like it, God has grown me, God has changed me. Whether in the last couple months, the last 20 years, God has changed me in my past. Like that's something that you and I need to celebrate and we need to recognize Look in the rearview mirror and see how much God has changed you. When you get discouraged, when you feel like you're not changing and growing as much as you hoped or that he would hope for you, recognize he's changed you a lot already. But then through the windshield, say, okay, the past is the past. What does God still want to change in me? How does he want me to become more like his son Jesus and less like my old life? And focus and walk in power as you overcome those other things. So you got to do both to have a healthy perspective of the sin in your past, the sin in your present, and the sin that you might struggle with in the future. And these verses make it clear. There are some people who, who in this world, they follow God and they belong to God. Other people who follow the, the, the world and, and the devil, and they belong to the devil. And although God is sovereign over all things, the devil is called the prince of this earth. That he's been given some authority because, remember, he was one of the three archangels. And even when he was cast out of heaven uh, with a third of the, the angels, and we call them demons now, he, on earth, until end times when he's cast into the lake of fire, he still has some influence over people. And although the cross and resurrection of Jesus conquered sin, Satan, death, and hell, the old devil, even though he got all his tools taken from his tool belt, still got a loud mouth. And he's a deceiver, and he's a liar, and he's an accuser. And he, for the last 2,000 years, and until Jesus comes back, will be able to run his mouth and try to trick as many people as he can. And, And so, it's important because sometimes you and I get discouraged. We know God wants to change us. We know ultimately when we see him face to face, in that moment he's going to make us perfect. But until we see him face to face, he's going to be continually, gradually changing us, moving us. But you and I, don't we have some junky situations? <laughs> Where sometimes it feels like, God, how can I really grow in this situation? 
I feel held back by the people I'm around or, or the, the place I work or the situation that I'm in. And God's saying, I can grow you no matter where you are. Everybody is going to have the same struggles when you're trying to grow to be more like a holy God and yet you live in a broken world. You will take one step forward and take a shot to the jaw by the old devil and feel like, man, what's the point? And you take two steps forward and one step back, two steps forward and one step back. But you've got to understand, it's like this. Silas, we got two floors, an upstairs, two bed, one bath. It's a little house, but it's nice and compact. Tara and I, we've got our room upstairs. We've got the second bedroom is a playroom. With just one kid, though, you'd think, wouldn't we have our son in that room? Well, no. <laughs> he's got the basement to himself. And he's got the whole basement to play and have fun. And it's a nice, clean basement. But his room is down there. And sometimes Tara and I struggle because we're like, isn't that kind of weird that we put our kid in the basement by himself? Like, it's not that far from us. that We don't even need voice monitors. We can hear him talking. But, like, it's weird. And I say, it's okay. It's okay. Well, he, 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 right now, he don't know much different. When he gets a little bigger, he'll get mostly scared. Then when he's a teenager, he'll love it. He'll be like, oh, I don't want to be around y'all. But, but right now, sometimes, even when he, uh, as my child, knows that his daddy is upstairs and he's down in this dark basement, he'll hear, he'll hear sometimes at night, he'll say, I hear something. He'll yell at us, Mom! Mom! In the middle of the night, we'll run down and say, what? What's wrong? I heard something. <laughs> but he was... No, you didn't. It's okay. It's, it's the clock. It's whatever. I say, I'm scared. And he'll, he'll go back to sleep. You see, over and over and over, we got to tell him, listen, mommy and daddy love you. We're right upstairs. It's okay. And he has to understand, and this is the challenge for him, that the power of his daddy being right upstairs is more powerful than the darkness that he's sitting in. And so you may be discouraged with the lack of, of transformation in your life lately and the world hitting you like a ton of bricks. But God's saying, don't lose heart. You might be in a bad situation, but I can change you in the midst of the bad situation. You might not know where you're going next, but I can change you and mold you and shape you in the midst of this darkness because the power of our daddy is more powerful than the darkness. Last but not least, we'll wrap this up. Verse 20 and 21. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God. So three times, true, true, true. Remember, when you're studying the Bible, look for repetition, look for patterns. He is the true God and eternal life. And then verse 21, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Last but not least, God wants you to know that Jesus is better than idols. God wants you to know that Jesus is better than idols. How many times do you hear people say nowadays who are trying to refute the Bible? They'll say something like, the Bible doesn't say that Jesus is God. Never does it say that Jesus is God. Well, that's not true. It says it all over the place, but John makes it very clear. John's his best friend. He walked with him. He knows him better than anyone else. And he's saying he is the true God. Who is? His son, Jesus Christ and eternal life. He is God. He is God. And then he says, the very end, verse 21, little children. So again, this is the Father's heart. He's trying to communicate God's Father's, God the Father, his heart for his little children. Keep yourselves from idols. That's quite the way to end a message. Like how many of y'all would, would wrap up your Christmas card with, hey, uh, Little Susie, she had a wonderful year. She got into gymnastics, won a couple meets. It was great. And Bobby, he had played on the flag football team. It was a wonderful experience. And, and we're still working at our jobs. Everything's great. And uh, by the way, keep yourself from idols. Sincerely, <laughs> like that would be a weird way to wrap up something like that, right? And yet he, he makes it a point. He ends on that. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. You see, he's saying all along, this whole theme, follow Jesus. Follow Jesus, because there's a lot of things that pose to be better than Jesus. And by nature, idolatry 
will always try to deceive you and promising that it can give you things only God can give you. John Calvin said that the heart of man is an idol factory. (laughs) We just create idols for ourselves. We ponder things that might be good and joyous and we seek after them. Things that a lot of times God gave us to be good things and when we put them in the place of God, they become God for us. And then they become bad things. And so, we're going to end tonight. I'm going to give you five quick questions. Litmus test you can give yourself. You want to know, do I have idols or not? Have I put something ahead of Jesus? Because you know if I just wrap this message up, and time says I should, but if I just wrap this up and say, hey, don't follow idols, y'all be like, sounds good. Stay away from shrines, and, and, and we'll just mosey on with life. But you know, and I know, we all struggle with idols. So, here's a few things to ask yourself. Number one, what or who do you love the most? Again, idols are often good things that become God. And, and so what, what happens is you and I might say, I love my spouse. Good. But if you love your spouse more than Jesus, then your spouse just became an idol. How many times do you hear people say, I can't live without fill in the blank. My kids. I can't live without my job, my pets, my fill in the blank. If they really love that more than God, that just became an idol. And what God gave them as something good to enjoy now has spoiled their enjoyment in Christ. Number two, what or who do you fear the most? This is a, this is a power issue. Because what you or who you fear the most is someone that you have given power to. That if it's not Jesus, if it's not God, then, then you've given them too much authority in your life. Well, I, I fear losing someone. I fear cancer. I fear my health going wrong. Those things now have a power they never should have had over you. I fear being single my whole life. I fear someone dying close to me. The Bible says that we don't have to fear God, and yet fearing God is the beginning of wisdom. We don't have to fear the wrath of God because Jesus took it on the cross, but yet we fear God because he is holy and majestic and perfect. And everyone who encountered God in the Old Testament fell on their face and is as if they were dead because God is God. There should always be that fear of his holiness. Number three, do you have a functional savior? Last week we opened it up, testimony time. Young lady said, I knew about Jesus, but while I had my mom here, I didn't care because I didn't need him. That's all of us, isn't it? We've got things that, that, that we use as functional saviors that we don't need God to be number one in our life because we have some other temporary things that we put in his place, don't we? Again, your spouse, your hobby, there could be all kinds of things that you have as a functional savior. Number four, what or who are you sacrificing for? This is where you, you find what you deem valuable in life. If you are sacrificing more for people in your life than you are for the God of the universe, if you say, when was the last time I sacrificed to align my life with God's will? You say, I I don't really know. But then you say, when was the last time you sacrificed for the, the boyfriend or the girlfriend you never should have sacrificed for? Well, I do that all the time. They always treat me like junk, and I do this for them, and I help them with this, and I do that. And, well, when was the last time you sacrificed for your kids? Well, I sacrifice for them all the time. When was the last time you sacrificed for your job or your hobbies or your dreams? I sacrifice for my dreams all the time. I hit the gym because I want to get in shape, and I want to do this, and I got goals. Okay, when was the last time you sacrificed for God? What you sacrifice for the most is what you value the most. And if it's above God, it's an idol. Last but not least. What is the heaven you are chasing? It's been said that every magazine cover is somebody's heaven, right? Like we all have a a, a picture that we paint for what the end goal of life is, what we're all chasing. We, for many of us, would call it the American dream. But what does it it mean for you um, to be chasing heaven? Is heaven a relationship with Jesus Christ as it should be? Or is it that perfect house in the country with the white picket fence the perfect relationship 
You see, whatever your heaven is will be what you are striving after. And you give your time to that. You give your energy to that. What's the heaven? What's the, hey, if I just get this, then everything in life will be better. Once I get that degree, everything will change. Once I move to this new house or this new city, man, I'm going to turn over a new leaf. It's going to be good. Is it ever as good as we thought? No. But it took us one more step further away from a true heaven. And we realize all these temporary heavens, they ain't ever as good as they promised. And if we didn't see them as heaven, we could have just enjoyed them for what they were. But we didn't. Tried to. Tried to. That's the Father's heart. That's the Father's heart. God wants you to know him and love him through his son, Jesus Christ. People who give their life to him, who heed the call, follow me. How many do you know who have taken this serious to follow me? How many people do you know have said, I regret that? It wasn't worth it. No. I never heard it. But how many people who actually take that serious and say, I'm going to go against the grain. Everyone else is going this way. I'm going to take the narrow path. How many say, I had no idea what I was missing. I had no idea how much it would cost me, but I had no idea how much I would gain. And they find a beauty and they find life that you can't know outside of walking down that narrow path. Let's pray.